Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm Janice Leibovitz. You are my People of the Book. Shana Tova to you. I hope you had a beautiful Yontov. I hope you spent it with people you love doing the things that you love to do. I hope it was uplifting, spiritual in all the ways that you wanted it to be. And I hope you had the time to do lots of reading. So it's now September. And September in South Africa means that it's Heritage Month. But what does heritage mean? What does it mean to you? And I know that we take it for granted that when we say it's Heritage Month, with the 24th of September being Heritage Day, We take it for granted that we mean it's South African Heritage Day and South African Heritage Month. But we do refer to South Africa as the Rainbow Nation, and it's a bit of a melting pot of cultures. So um, today, let's take a look at what heritage and identity actually means. And I'm going to take a look at various books, a variety of books on a whole lot of different cultures, um, things on different heritages. And some of them might be familiar to you. The books might be familiar to you, but we'll go on a bit of a journey. But first, let's let's take a look. Let's define, well, let's try and define. Let's take a look at what culture, heritage, and identity actually mean. And, of course, you know, when questions like this arise, they're not really as straightforward as they might first appear. Well, to me, they actually don't appear straightforward at all. And um, perhaps the first place to begin addressing this topic is to acknowledge that in a country like South Africa, there isn't one heritage. It's not easily delineated. It's it's not a set of distinct identities. And the cultures, the languages, the heritages of South Africa, they're multiple, they're diverse, they are dynamic. And the intersectional issues of, of gender and ethnicity and race, they really do complicate the matters quite a lot further. And it's highly inadvisable to try and categorize the different people contained within our borders, although I know that that people do try and do it all the time. And people do like to, I think by nature, we like to label people and we like to put people into boxes. But I know it's inadvisable to do that. And somehow through through the interchange of cultures and sharing cultural influences, it is the age of globalization and there there remains a tapestry of a phenomena which we can unambiguously term South Africa so we'll take a look at at what we we can really term as culture and we'll look at it throughout the show this is people of the book with Janice Leibovitz You're listening to People of the Book, and I am Janice Leibovitz. Today, because it is September and it's Heritage Month, we are talking about books, about different heritages and different cultures. And I was saying, you know, it's quite difficult to define what culture and heritage really are. And before the break, I was talking about what heritage means. And when we talk about Heritage Day, we tend to think, well, it's Heritage Day. We live in South Africa. It must mean South African heritage. But that isn't necessarily so. And like heritage and identity, culture is a term that causes so much confusion. And it really suffers from misuse. 
And traditionally, we use it to refer to the way of life of a specific group of people. We include their various ways, the ways they behave, their belief systems, values, customs, the way they dress, their social relationships, their religion, their symbols. But the pitfalls of that term are quite considerable. It's not unusual for, for people who visit South Africa or Africa at large even to inquire about the nature of, well, what is African culture? And we all know that that really can be broken down into its many parts. You know, African culture, there's Kosa, Zulu, Pedi, Himba, Berber. There's so many vastly different modes of practice and they, they all have very little in common. Um, except for the, the actual geographic proximity to, to where they, they all actually reside. So it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination to say that culture doesn't exist because, um, it's just difficult to, to reach a consensus about what the, the term actually means. But culture, I think, just remains something that people identify with. It's where they come from. And to use that, that old cliche, if you don't know where you come from, you might not know where you're going. So as I said, I'm going to talk about books, about different cultures, different heritages that people have, have been passed down from generation to generation. And I'm going to start with my own heritage, culture that I've passed down, passed down from my ancestors, from my parents. And my late father was Hungarian. So I'm going to be talking about um, a Hungarian novel. And it's called Goodbye to Budapest. And it's by Margarita Morris. And the tagline for the book is family and freedom. It's worth fighting for what really matters. Budapest, 1952. When Catalin and her father, Marton, are woken by the ringing of the doorbell in the dead of night, it can mean only one thing. The secret police have come to arrest him on charges of subversion, but Catalin knows her father is innocent. In a communist society where ordinary people live in fear of the dreaded secret police, suspicion and betrayal are rife. Whilst Marton endures the injustice of being wrongly accused, Catalin must find out who amongst her friends and acquaintances she can truly trust. But there's a glimmer of hope in the darkness. The death of Stalin is a spark that ignites a fuse. For the first time, it seems that change is possible. In October 1956, a student-led demonstration soon turns into a bloody battle to overthrow the hated communist regime. Confronted by Soviet tanks, Young and old take to the streets, armed with Molotov cocktails, bravery and cunning. Catalin and those she loves must fight for freedom. They must fight to survive. Packed with authentic historical details, Goodbye to Budapest is a panoramic novel of courage, sacrifice and the indomitable human quest for freedom. And this book itself, it's quite meaningful for me because my father escaped Budapest during that uprising. So having survived World War II and all that happened then, he then survived leaving Budapest during this very tumultuous time. So this is a novel and it's, it's quite factually correct. There's a lot of um, history and a lot of, there's a lot of facts. And as it said, authentic historical detail about what it was like to be in Budapest at the time of the uprising. 
um, in, in the late 1950s, 1956 to be exact. It's called Goodbye to Budapest by Margarita Morris. Um, it's a Hungarian book, obviously, about Hungary. My mom, on the other hand, is English, very English. And a book to me that depicts British history and, and British lifestyle, English lifestyle, is a book called Legacy. One family, a cup of tea, and the company that took on the world. It's by Thomas Harding. And this book holds great meaning for me also because I actually interviewed Thomas last year, right at the start of this pandemic. I was in Cape Town. Um, we were supposed to be enjoying the Jewish Literary Festival. And Thomas had traveled to Cape Town to be there. And unfortunately, it didn't happen, as we all know. I interviewed him telephonically. Um, he had traveled from the UK. It was all quite up in the air. Should we meet? Should we not meet? It was, it was all just a horrible time. And this book that he wrote about his family, who his ancestors had actually started the Lions Company. And at the time, the, the book is described as the panoramic, panoramic new history of modern Britain as told through the story of one extraordinary family and one groundbreaking company. In the early 1800s, Lehman Gluckstein and his family escaped the pogroms of Eastern Europe and made their way to Whitechapel in London's East End. There, starting with nothing, they worked tirelessly to pull themselves out of poverty creating a small tobacco factory that grew to become the largest catering company in the world, J. Lyons. For over a century, Lyons was on every high street, in every home, in every coffee and teacup. It was an ascent from rags to riches in the face of many obstacles. Poverty, hatred and anti-Semitism stood between this poor immigrant family and the British dream. Legacy charts the rise and fall of one of the most influential dynasties in British history through the lives of five astonishing generations. Both sweeping and intimate, it is a story of sacrifice and selflessness, betrayal and personal tragedy, and empire and its cost. It is also an illuminating new exploration of Britain and its place in the world. And I'm sure many of you, especially if you grew up in homes where your parents or grandparents collected, you know, those, those biscuit tins or tea tins. These are the type of things that, that were quite meaningful to them. These were family trinkets, family items. You know, the lions, I remember being, hearing about, spoken about the lions tea house. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know anything about it. I'd never seen one, but I just remember hearing about it. This is what, what, heritage is about and this is legacy one family a cup of tea and the company that took on the world by thomas harding i'll be chatting more culture and heritage throughout the show I love it when you read to me. this is people of the book with janice Liebowitz. you are listening to people of the book i'm janice Liebowitz, and today we are talking about books on different culture, different heritage, with this being Heritage Month in South Africa. I know that we tend to think it's purely South African heritage, but we are the Rainbow Nation and we're a bit of a melting pot. So I'm taking a bit of a liberty and talking about books on 
various cultures and various different heritages. So before the break, I spoke a bit about books about my own heritage, being England and Hungary. We're going to move across the globe. And I know that many people enjoy reading books about Japan in the Far East. Very interesting, the history and the culture there. It's quite fascinating. And a book that caught my attention a couple of years ago was an absolutely beautiful book. It's a novel. It's based on fact. It's inspired by a true story. And it's called The Woman in the White Kimono. It's by Anna Johns. And it is described as illuminating a searing portrait of one woman torn between her culture and her heart and another woman on a journey to discover the true meaning of home. Japan, 1957. 17-year-old Naoko Nakamura's prearranged marriage secures her family's status in their traditional Japanese community. However, Naoko has fallen for an American sailor, and to marry him would bring great shame upon her entire family. When it's learned Naoko carries the sailor's child, she's cast out in disgrace and forced to make unimaginable choices with consequences that will ripple across generations. America, present day. Tori Kovac finds a letter containing a shocking revelation. Setting out to learn the truth, Tori's journey leads her to a remote seaside village in Japan where she must confront the demons of the past to pave a way for redemption. In breathtaking prose, The Woman in the White Kimono shows how two women decades apart are inextricably bound by the secrets between them. This is an absolutely beautiful book. And as I said, it is inspired by a true story. It's a work of fiction that the author actually crafted from real events, including her own or actually her father's. Um, he fell in love with a Japanese girl when he was enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And her family, um, the, the young girl's family, had invited, had invited him to a traditional tea. But when they met him, him being an American sailor, he was refused they wouldn't actually allow him into the house and from that she crafted her own story and she worked back from what she knew and she then started to do the research and it turned out that that through her research she discovered that over 10,000 babies were born to American servicemen and Japanese women before during and after the occupation 10,000 so Japan has its own dark history of these mixed race children who they completely rejected. And there, there's a horrific theme that runs through this book about these babies that were, that were actually murdered and buried at the back of a, of a supposed maternity home. And it's, it's a very dark history, one that obviously wasn't spoken about. There was um, someone referred to as a real-life demon midwife who inspires a character in this book. And it's to read about this history and, and a heritage that Japan has that one can imagine they don't like to refer to. I would imagine, I'm not sure how, how it is dealt with in their history books, but it's quite fascinating. It's not something I had ever heard of. And I'm not sure many people who live 
outside of, of Japan or who don't know much about their history would know about, but it's fascinating and it makes for incredible reading. It's a beautiful, moving book. It's called The Woman in the White Kimono by Anna Johns. Another book about Japan and for people who read up on the subject and who are interested in, in the history of Japan, Memoirs of a Geisha, very popular many years ago, um, was also made into a film, which apparently was slated. I didn't know that. Um, it's by Arthur Golden. Apparently, he got a lot wrong in the book. It was uh, an absolute runaway bestseller. I love the book. I don't think I remember seeing the film. But it speaks about um, the story of Nita Sayuri, and it tells her, her the story of her life as a geisha. It is completely fictionalized. And it begins in a fishing village in 1929 where this, this nine-year-old girl who has these very unusual blue-gray eyes, very unusual for a Japanese girl, she's taken from her home and sold into slavery to a renowned geisha house. And the story unfolds and we witness her transformation as she learns how to become a geisha. Um, how to how to dance, how to create music, how to wear a kimono, how to apply the elaborate makeup, how to do her hair, how to pour sake and tea. Um, it, it's a whole, it's a process, and it, it's you enter a world, this geisha world, where where appearance is everything. And women are trained to to beguile the most powerful men and where love counts for nothing. Love is an illusion. And it, it's the most, it's a fabulous book. I don't know how I feel if I read it now, possibly slightly jaded um, with me being quite the cynic. Um, but I, I loved it at the time. And as I say, the film apparently was slated and ripped to pieces. I'm not sure why. But that's Memoirs of a Geisha. And, it, you know, regardless of your feelings about it and and the, the fact that, you know, feminism aside, it's it's an insight into quite a secret hidden world. But that it was written by Arthur Golden. Staying on that side of the world, um, books about China, Chinese culture and um, Chinese heritage. And I know many people are quite interested in that as well. So let's move across and take a look at that. A very popular book, also an extremely popular film, was The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan, um, a story about family and very much about family bonds and about passing culture, heritage and history down from mothers to daughters. And as for the, the, the Jewish religion, where we, we pass it down maternally, our, our religious line is passed down maternally. It's a story about four mothers, four daughters and their families. And their histories shift depending on who's telling the story. In 1949, four Chinese women who are recent immigrants to San Francisco begin meeting to eat dim sum, play mayong and talk. They are united in their shared and unspeakable loss and hope. And they call themselves the Joy Luck Club. Rather than sink into tragedy, they choose to gather to raise their spirits and money. 
To despair was to wish back for something already lost or to prolong what was already unbearable. Forty years later, the stories and history continue. With wit and sensitivity, Amy Tan examines the sometimes painful, often tender and always deep connection between mothers and daughters. As each woman reveals her secrets, trying to unravel the truth about her life, the strings become more tangled, more entwined. Mothers boast or despair over daughters and daughters roll their eyes, even as they feel the inextricable tightening of their matriarchal ties. Um, if you know Amy Tan, you'll know she's an incredible storyteller. She just pulls her readers in to immerse themselves in the lives of her characters and the complexities of their stories and the mysteries. They, they keep things hidden. They reveal them when they're ready. She's really an amazing storyteller and she speaks so much of the culture and, and the things that, that are lost and the things that are gained. By, by leaving your your country of birth and your your home country and ancestors and those loved ones who you wonder if you'll ever see again, she just has a way about her. And I think I read somewhere that she recently may have um, released something that that spoke about the fact that this was um, partly autobiographical, which I think everyone suspected at the time, and. It, it was just huge insight into the the Chinese community who had left China and had to set up home elsewhere and who who took so much of home with them and needed so desperately to hold on to to the parts of them that they didn't want to lose and to hand that down to future generations and I think all cultures feel the same we leave home, we leave our home countries, and we feel the need to cling on to what is familiar and to pass that down to future generations. And the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan just portrays that so beautifully. Another book about China, which I remember having owned for many, many years, and so much so, it just, it went everywhere with me. I don't remember reading it from, from cover to cover. But it just, I slept it everywhere, so much so that the front cover fell off. And it was Wild Swans by Yong Chang. And it's a story of three generations in 20th century China. It's it's memoir, it's it's history, it's a classic. It, it became a classic, it was translated into 30 languages, it sold over 10 million copies, and it was about Mao Zedong's impact on China. And it was specifically about the female experience and and uh, the influence on family members. And um, the author's grandmother, um, a warlord's concubine, her mother struggles as a, an idealistic young communist and her parents' experience as members of the communist elite and the ordeal that they went through during the Cultural Revolution. She herself, the author, was a red guard briefly at the age of 14. And... It tells her story. She worked as, um, she was a peasant, a barefoot doctor, a steel worker, an electrician. And it tells the story of each generation as it unfolds. It's an incredible look at China's history. And, and, and at times it's heartbreaking. It's horrifying. And it's quite an extraordinary family portrait. And it, it's 
it's a, a turbulent century in China's history. And as I say, I've just, I never read it from cover to cover. I think I read parts of it, chapters of it. I picked it up. I put it down. But I remember the cover actually literally fell off. And now I have no idea where my copy is. But if you want to know um, about a turbulent time in China's past, then Wild Swans by Zhong Chang is probably a definitive historical look at, at Mao's, Mao Zedong's impact on China and their heritage and what they carried forward into the future, most definitely. Taking a look at what is probably very current and very relevant is a look at books about Afghanistan. And who better to write about that than Nadia Hashimi? I know she's an extremely popular author. For those who don't know, Nadia Hashimi is actually a pediatrician. Um, I was privileged to meet her a few years ago. And when I discovered that she was a pediatrician, I was blown away, just shocked. She has four children. She's a prolific author. She was not born in Afghanistan. She is um, of Afghani heritage. She's American. She lives in Washington with her husband, who is also of Afghani descent. He is a neurosurgeon. I mean, power couple. Her parents left Afghanistan in the 70s before the Soviet invasion. And she has always made it her business to learn whatever she can about her Afghani past. Her parents never hid from her where they were from. They never denied her roots. They never made it a secret who they were. They didn't try and integrate themselves so much into their American, new American life that they turned their backs on their past. And from as early as she could, from whenever she could, she made it her business to do whatever she could to help those in Afghanistan, particularly women. I think that one of her most popular books I know was her first book, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. But A House Without Windows is probably one of her most definitive works because it speaks about the way women in Afghani prisons are treated. It's about um, a woman called Ziba, who for decades was a loving wife, a patient mother. It's a novel. It is a novel, but her research is so, so intense. It's, it could be a fact. You would think that it was, it was a biography of someone. Um, her quiet life is shattered with Ziba when her husband Kamal is found brutally murdered with a hatchet in the courtyard of their home. She is so catatonic with shock that she can't even account for her whereabouts at the time of his death. And her children swear that she couldn't have committed this, this crime. And of course, the murdered husband's family is positive that she did and they demand justice. Barely escaping a vengeful mob, she is arrested and jailed. And as she awaits trial, she meets a group of women whose own misfortunes have also led them to the bleak cells of the jail. There's a 30-year-old woman who was imprisoned to protect her from an honor-killing, 25-year-old who ran away from home with her teenage sister, but who now stays in the prison because it is a safe shelter, 
a 19-year-old who's pregnant and unmarried, waiting for her lover's family to ask for her hand in marriage. And these women are sitting, waiting for their trials. And you read this book and you, you wonder, will they get justice? Will they get the trial? That, that is, The world that they are living in is not anything that we are familiar with. And they have, they form a sisterhood because they need to. But she introduces into this world an American-raised lawyer and his commitment to human rights and his commitment to help those in his motherland bring him back to Afghanistan. And it's completely foreign to him. He's of Afghani heritage, but he's born and raised in America. And this, he, as dedicated as he is to wanting to help, he has no idea what he's got himself into. And he doesn't even know if his client is innocent. He doesn't have a clue what he's landed up in. And it, it looks at Afghani women and their hopes and their dreams and this is so relevant with what's going on today. I mean, you know, with I'm not even going to go into the the whole story of South Africa not accepting Afghani refugees. That's a whole separate issue and it, it has its own difficulties and we need to understand why. But Nadia Hashimi just touches on issues that we cannot ever even think we're going to understand. And if you want to understand Afghani and the, the heritage and the culture of Afghanistan, read Nadia Hashimi's books, A House Without Windows. Her new book is called Sparks Like Stars. It's about an Afghan-American woman returning to Kabul to discover the truth about her roots. Just go and look for Nadia Hashimi's books. I'm talking about books about different heritages and cultures because it is Heritage Month, and we'll do more of that after this break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. You are listening to People of the Book, and I'm Janice Liebowitz. Today we're talking about books on different heritage, different culture, seeing as it is September and it's Heritage Month in South Africa. And what do South Africans love more than sports. It is our ingrown, inborn heritage and culture. It's in our blood. And what do we love more than books about sport? I mean, when I was looking for books on South African culture, and I mean, one comes out every day, whether it's politics, whether it's a biography that someone's written, it's a business book. It's, we love our nonfiction books. It's, it's something that South Africans just seem to just be born to read books on on anything to do with business and and having survived ordeals and overcome struggles that is that is in our nature that is what we as South Africans do but sport is our heritage and our culture and I mean when I see how many books come out written by an ex-captain an ex-player and whatever they are, there are so many and they, their stories are so incredible. You just want to read them all. They have so much to tell and so much to share, but I picked two and one 
is South African, one isn't, and you'll see why in a minute. So the first one is Miracle Men by Lord Bernard, and it's the story of the 2019 Springbok Rugby World Cup victory because it's one of the most inspiring in our sporting history. It's about how two men, the coach, Rassi Erasmus, and Captain Sia Kalisi, led a team of warriors into battle and conquered the world when equality and division are still undeniable realities in South African society, unfortunately. When the box won the 2007 World Cup final, they did it with 20 white players in their match day squad of 22. In 2019, there were five black Africans in their starting lineup for the Yokohama final, and the images of Sia Khaleesi lifting the Webb Ellis Cup will be replayed forever. None of this seemed possible just two years ago when the box had reached an all-time low. They'd slipped to number seven in the world, they'd lost faith, faith of the rugby-loving public, but then Erasmus came in with this 18 months to prepare for the competition. Sports writer Lloyd Bernard takes the reader on a thrilling journey from the time when no one gave the box the chance of winning to the delirious victory tour. He covers the key roles played by Erasmus and Khaleesi and their special relationship. There are ups and downs on route to victory. The first signs of self-belief when they beat the All Blacks in Wellington, Khaleesi's injury, the fall of Apiwa Dianti when he was caught with banned substances in his system, and the Langabon incident involving Eben Etzebeth that threatened to derail the team. This is a must read. If you are a lover and believer in South African rugby in the Springboks, you have to read Miracle Men by Lloyd Bernard. And of course, you also need to read Sia's new book. Uh, I think it is out or it's coming out shortly. A must read. He is, I think he's, he's everyone's hero. Sia Khalees, when you just, you see his face and you think he is just the picture of what a hero looks like. And the story of, of how the Springbok team won the, the Rugby World Cup in 2019 is something that I think is, is ingrained in all our hearts. The other sports book that I have chosen to tell you about is My Life in Red and White by Arsene Wenger, Daniel Hahn and Andrea Reese, because I am an Arsenal fan. And um, I'm not going to tell you where to send the hate mail if you are going to send it. Everyone's a fan of, of a soccer team. Choose your own. There's no judging, so don't judge me. But there is only one Arsene Wenger, and for the very first time, in his own words, this is his story. This is his definitive autobiography, and he is, no matter what you think of the team, Arsene Wenger is a revolution, revolutionary football manager. And in this book, he talks about his life and his career he talks about his leadership principles for success on and off the field. He talks about his his stories of guiding Arsenal to unprecedented success. And he is truly one of the most influential figures in world football. He won multiple Premier League titles, a record number of FA Cups, and he masterminded Arsenal's historic invincible season of 2003 to 2004 and a 49-match unbeaten run. He changed the game in England forever. He popularized the attacking approach. He changed attitudes towards nutrition, fiction, fitness, and coaching methods, and towards foreign managers. In this book, My Life in Red and White, he charts his extraordinary career, including his rise in France and Japan, where he managed Nancy, Monaco, and Nagoya Grampus Eight clubs that also play in red and white. 
to his 22 years in North London at the helm of one of the world's biggest clubs. He reflects on Arsenal's astonished, astonishing domestic triumphs and bittersweet European campaigns, signing and selling some of the world's most talented players, moving the Gunners to their new home, the Emirates Stadium. I've been there. It's magnificent. And the unrest that led to his departure in 2018 and subsequent role as Chief of Global Football Development for FIFA. This book is a must-read, not only for Arsenal supporters, but for football fans everywhere, as well as for business leaders and anyone who's looking for the tools for success in work and life. It illuminates the mystique surrounding one of the most revered and respected managers, revealing the wisdom and vision that have made him an icon in the world's most popular sport. That's my life in red and white by Arsene Wenger, Daniel Hahn, and Andrea Reese. As you can hear, I do revere the man. I think he's incredible. What he did with Arsenal was amazing. And this is a must read. We're talking books on heritage, culture, and those were books about the culture of sport that is ingrained in every South African's heart. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. You are listening to People of the Book and I'm Janice Leibovitz. We've been talking about books on different cultures, different heritages, and I would never be able to do a show like this without talking about culture and heritage from one of my favorite places, Ireland. And I think one of the most definitive books on Irish history, heritage and culture is probably Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's a New York Times number one bestseller. And it's a a absolutely, absolutely masterful memoir of his childhood in Ireland. It doesn't make for pretty or happy reading. And in his own words, he says when he looks back on his childhood, he wonders how he managed, managed to survive it all. It was, of course, a miserable childhood. A happy childhood is hardly worth your while. Worse than the ordinary miserable childhood is the miserable Irish childhood. And worse yet is the miserable Irish Catholic childhood. And that's how he begins his memoir. And you would think after reading that, why would anyone want to read any further? He was born in Depression era Brooklyn to recent Irish immigrants. And he was raised in the slums of Limerick Island. His mother, Angela, who, I mean, this whole book was dedicated to him. She had no money to feed her children. His father, Malachi, rarely worked. And when he did, he drank his wages. Yet he nurtures in Frank an appetite for the one thing he can provide, which is a story. And Frank lives for his father's tales about um, about Kuchelaine, who saved Ireland, and of the angel on the seventh step who brings his mother babies. Um, and it's the story that, that talks about his, his actual survival. He wears rags for diapers. He begs a, a pig's head for Christmas dinner. He gathers cold from the roadside to light a fire. He endures, po- endures poverty, near starvation and the casual cruelty of relatives and neighbors, but he lives to tell the tale with eloquence, exuberance, remarkable forgiveness. And he tells the story with absolute humor and compassion. And if you read any books by Irish authors, you'll know that there is something so, so unique to any Irish author, that humor, the wit, the compassion. 
And it's an absolute classic. I know it sounds awful, but Angela's Ashes is just a classic, classic Irish book. To read more modern books about Ireland and to to read more modern books that depict that Irish humor and wit, I would suggest anything by Marion Keyes. They are not just for women. Um, her books will have you laughing out loud, also crying a bit maybe, but her, her classic Rachel's Holiday, and she's bringing out a sequel to that, hopefully in the next year or so. Watermelon, her latest book, Grown Ups, they're about family. They're about families who are at war with each other, who love each other desperately, who want to kill each other. These are family stories. They will make you laugh. They will make you cry. They are they are just real homegrown family stories, but as I say, with that unique Irish humour, there's just something that doesn't exist anywhere on the planet that Irish authors just seem to imbue into their books. It's it's part of I don't know the Irish soul. I don't know what it is. The other author I would suggest if you want to read anything Irish to know about Irish wit and humour is Anna McPartland. The Last Days of Rabbit Hayes, that is not for the faint-hearted. Believe it or not, it's about a young mother who is dying of breast cancer. Some of the funniest lines I've ever read in a book. Also, obviously, completely heartbreaking. But one of the best books I've ever read she followed that up with Beneath the Big Blue Sky, and her latest book is Waiting for the Miracle. They talk about Ireland. You will have the heart and soul of Ireland on the pages in front of you. You will understand Irish culture, Irish heritage. It's in the the, the writing of the book, the heart and soul of the book, and I'm going to leave you with that. It's been wonderful talking to you about heritage and culture, and I wish you all very well over the fast. I hope it's uplifting. I hope it's meaningful. Take care of yourself and of each other. Vaccinate if you're able to. Wear a mask and read a book.